0: I mean, when you hear a life that has endured that kind of tragedy and still stand up here and say, but God is good. <laughs> is there a better sermon than that? I mean, not, not to my knowledge. But let's, uh, let's dive into Isaiah 61. We're going to start this thing. We're going to be in it for the rest of the summer, at least I am. Does anybody have a blue Bible? Can. And if you're there at Isaiah 61, can you tell me what page that is? 528. So if you have a blue Bible, which I don't have, um, that's on page 528. We stand for God's word; you sit for mine. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me. Proclaim good news, gospel to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. Restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. This is God's word for today. We're going to, you can be seated. We're going to look at verse 1 and maybe a little bit of verse 2 today. And I feel like when we're starting a new book, I got to give you just a little bit of background just so we know what we're stepping into. Isaiah, of course, is the writer of this book, prophet, One who is set apart by God to be able to say, thus saith the Lord. And he's saying these things and writing these things at a time of national upheaval. Great instability. Israel, the northern kingdom, or the ten tribes to the north, they've been wiped out. Now Judah stands alone against a superpower, the Babylonians, who are threatening to annihilate them. So, time of just great instability. But more than the problem being out there and the threats out there, Isaiah declares that Judah's real problem is not external, it's internal. She's sick, she is spiritually sick on the inside. In fact, look at how he begins Isaiah. Isaiah uh, begins really by saying this. He says, Hear me, you heavens, listen, for the Lord has spoken. Woe to this sinful nation, that's Judah, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evil doers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel and listen how he describes this. He says. Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot. To the top of your head. There's no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores. Not cleansed or bandaged. Or soothed with oil. That's the picture. You're sick. you have forsaken God. And. When you read Isaiah, it's her, her sickness is not so much because she isn't going to church, she isn't praying, she isn't assembling or worshiping. Her sickness, when you read through Isaiah 1 and then the rest of the chapter, is you have forgotten who you are. You have failed to defend the poor, the powerless, the widow, and the orphan. So that's a little bit of the context of Isaiah 61. And what you read when you go through the book of Isaiah is God now is going to respond to Judah's spiritual sickness. And for the first 39 chapters, I mean, God is quite harsh. He's saying, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to punish you. And this all culminates in chapter 39 where God says, I'm even going to exile you. I'm going to literally take you out of the land. Because God reserves his harshest judgment for his people. But then when you get to chapter 40, the tone changes. And it starts off this way. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And then throughout Isaiah, the whole book, you see this theme, this thread of hope that is centered on a rescuer, a Messiah who is to come, who's gonna make everything right. And that's what we're reading here in Isaiah 61 good news to the poor, healing for the brokenhearted, freedom for the captives, a release from darkness for all those in prison. The year of the Lord's favor. Now at face value, what's Isaiah talking about? See, what most of us do, and and I'm quick to do this, is we take a text like this and we run it to Christ. And we're going to do that this morning. But, we will never get the full meaning of Isaiah 61 if we don't first run it back to Torah. Because what Isaiah is talking about in chapter 61 are things very specific in Torah. And if we don't know those specific things in Torah, we're never going to understand fully what God is saying here in Isaiah 61. Because what God is talking about is things like the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. Do you know anything about sabbatical year? Jubilee. Jubilee. Good, hopefully after today, if you don't sleep on me, you're going to know a few things about about these things. Um, Here's where I feel like we need to start this morning, the most basic question, what is Torah? Anyone? First five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Hmm, thank you. Who said that? Yeah, doggone it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We study the Bible together, and we've talked about this before, because usually what someone will say is uh, Torah is law. And we just see it as a bunch of burdensome laws that God gave his people that no longer are applicable to us because we're under Christ. And I mean, how many of you think of of Torah that way? I mean, how how many love Torah? So much so that you've learned it. So much so that you've memorized it. See, the Jewish people know Torah. They love Torah. They live Torah. But to us, Torah is no longer applicable because we're not under law. But listen to me. Torah will never save anyone. It won't. But, to not see what Torah is. Torah is God's heart. God spoke Torah. God gave Torah. And I think so many of us that just think of Torah as this burdensome list of rules, we're we're failing to understand that this is God's heart. I remember... uh, a month ago or so, Gabe and I were in California, told you a little bit about this camp that we went to. Well, one night, I was walking back alone from the main meeting area to our cabin. And it was very dark, and this is very typical of me, but I, um, I didn't have my flashlight. No big deal. We'll make, make it back. The problem is, the first part was easy because it was an open area, open fields, but then I had to walk through this, this woods, and running through this woods was a river. I took one step in the woods, and I'm like, I can't see anything. I couldn't see anything. It was pitch dark, and so the whole time, I'm just going like this. I'm tripping over rocks. I'm banging into trees, and I'm like, just now, where is this path? I can't find it. See, that's how the ancients looked at life. They didn't have this enlightenment where it's like they just assumed because we're so smart, we can see everything. The ancients are like, the world is dark, and I can't see where I'm going. And could someone give me a path to show me how to make it through this dark world? That's what Torah is. It's God's instruction. It's God's wisdom. It's God's guidance. It's A lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And Moses says at the end when he gives him Torah, he says, all right, you got the choice here. You can choose death or you can choose life. But if you want the abundant life, you're going to learn this. You're going to love it. You're going to know it. You're going to live it. Now in Torah, don't know if you know this. God gave them a calendar. I mean, it's so specific. He, he, God calls this calendar or these, these, these events uh, in their calendar as God-appointed times. These aren't times that they came up with or that Moses came up with or that their people came up with. These are God-appointed times because God is not only interested in, in redeeming space, but God also wants to redeem time. So what's the most basic part of God's calendar? Guess. Shabbat, Sabbath. In fact, Sabbath is one of the ten. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the fourth commandment. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. The seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. In fact, everything in God's calendar revolves around the number seven. Don't know if you know this, but there are seven annual holidays. All the holidays are either celebrated for seven days or occur in the seventh month. Here, Sabbath falls on the seventh day. I'm giving you just a small taste of this theme of seven that runs through God's calendar. Now, why seven? What does seven symbolize? Perfection, wholeness, completion, more specifically, God. So these holidays are all about God. It's about God redeeming time and God redeeming us through his appointed times. And I love what Jews say. They say. You can destroy our temples. You can destroy our synagogues. But Sabbath is a palace in time. That the world can never take away. Now I like that. Because that's what Sabbath is. It is a palace. Or a cathedral. In time. And think about what Sabbath teaches us about God. Because. Sabbath, like the rest of Torah, are not just these rules that we have to follow, but they first and foremost teach us about God and that God is holy, and the way then that we're going to become holy as he is holy, we're going to be like God. And here's what Sabbath tells me about God. It tells me that God has his own way, that God has his own rhythm. For six days, God made the universe. He created the world. But on the seventh day, He rested. And see, what God is saying then is He's saying, I want my rhythm to be your rhythm. For six days, I want you to be like me. I want you to create. I want you to make things. I want you to build things. I want you to produce things. But the seventh day, I want you to stop. I want you to step away from all that. I want you to cease. Because that's what Sabbath means. It means to stop, to lay down, or to cease. But Sabbath is more than just stopping or ceasing or saying no to something. But Sabbath is also saying yes to something. It's also entering. What? Rest. God's rest. It's that time when we just step away from the noise and the busyness of life and we just center ourselves upon God and we soak in His grace. That's why God says in Deuteronomy 5 when He gives the Ten Commandments, in this fourth commandment and the version that's found in Deuteronomy 5 not only you shall keep the Sabbath day holy, but He gives reason. You're going to remember. What I did for you and how I took you out of Egypt and how I redeemed you. In fact, Sabbath is so at God's heart that when God takes his people out of Egypt, takes them to Sinai, performs this wedding because that's what God's people are. They're his bride and he enters into this marriage with them. And then God gives what every bride needs is a symbol, a wedding ring. You know what the wedding ring is for God's marriages with his people? Sabbath. And he's saying one day a week. It's just you and me. Now I don't know about you, but I grew up with strict Sabbath observance. The older I get, the more I'm appreciative of that. But I have to be honest that when I was growing up, I didn't always like it. And in fact, it was probably the least favorite day of the week for me. Um, And that's no no one's fault but my own. Uh, But then I went to Israel and lived in Jerusalem for four months. I couldn't believe what I saw and experienced. I remember our first Friday, because Sabbath for them starts, a day starts, evening, sunset to sunset. So day starts in the evening, Friday evening. I had a class on Friday afternoon, taught by a Jewish rabbi. This guy came in. He was just on cloud nine, dancing, skipping, happy. I'm like, that's interesting. Uh, this happened like f- three or four Fridays in a row. Finally, I asked him, are you always as happy? He goes, he started laughing. He goes, Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> it's Sabbath. I knew exactly what he's talking about. Because I would already been a month in Israel, and I couldn't believe what happened. Boom, the, the, the horn would sound. And this busy, bustling town, full of tension, six days a week, all of a sudden came to a complete stop. Peace, shalom, rest. And one of the things that Libby and I would do is we would always walk to the western wall uh, because we love to take it in, because what we would be taking in as we passed the houses and the windows would be open and there'd be families in there eating meals and loud and singing and dancing and And then you'd walk to Western Wall, and there'd be uh, tons of uh, Jewish people just skipping and dancing, literally, on their way to Western Wall. And you get to Western Wall, be filled with uh, Jewish people, sometimes in big circles, dancing, singing. Once a week, it was Christmas. Christmas. And so then I'm left thinking, like, How is it that we can so easily dismiss this day? Why aren't we keeping Sabbath? And I'll tell you, the more I think about it, I don't have an answer. And then I look at our world and I see how out of control people live and how so many people today are just exhausted. They're, they're working more. They're making less. They're going faster and faster. And then I look at our kids, and, and they're kind of the victims of this lifestyle. And they're brought into the busyness, the busyness. And you ask somebody, how you doing? Oh, I'm just so busy. Do you know busyness is a sin And I'll tell you why it's a sin. It's a sin because being busy, 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 busy all the time is me saying, I'm the deal. It's me taking myself too seriously. It's me taking my work too seriously. It's me taking money too seriously. It's me taking my time for me too seriously. Busyness is a sin. God said for six, you be like me. You work, you create, you produce. But a seventh, you rest. And you know what? This is further proof that God's laws are good. They're not burdensome. I don't know about you. I need rest. not only did God say, I want you to set aside a Sabbath day, but he goes further. He said, I also want you to set aside a Sabbath year. So every Sabbath year, called Shemitah, Sabbath year. You can read about this in Deuteronomy 15 and Leviticus 25. In fact, it was called a year of release. Because in a sabbatical year, in Shemitah, three things would happen. Number one, all debts were released. Cancelled, forgiven, meaning if you owed me money in that seventh year, done. If I owe you money in that seventh year, done, cancelled, forgiven. Second thing, all slaves were released. Now slavery in that day wasn't like slavery as we know it. Slavery occurred in that world when a person would get into so much debt, what they would do then is... They would just sell themselves to the person that they were in debt to as an indentured servant. But in the sabbatical year, the proclamation of liberty would be sounded, all slaves set free. Third thing, not only were the people given a Sabbath rest for the whole year, but the land was given a Sabbath rest. You can read about this in Leviticus 25. What they were to do is they were just let the fields rest. No planting, no cultivating, no harvesting. And anything that came up that year was first and foremost for the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger within their gate. God didn't stop here with Sabbath. Because all of this now points to the ultimate Sabbath, Jubilee. Jubilee is the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. And I want us to read a little bit from Torah this morning. So turn to Leviticus 25. Again, this is all building out of Sabbath. Leviticus 25. If anyone has a blue Bible and you are there right now, can you tell me what page it is? What? 89. Beginning at verse 8. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years. Now that might sound a little bit confusing, but so that the seventh Sabbath years amounts to a period of 49 years. Got it? Seven cycles of seven years brings you to 49. Then have the trumpet sound everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. And I wish I had time to even explain why that day. It's just awesome. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate now the 50th year. Remember, the 40th year is a sabbatical year. Now the 50th year is going to be another sabbatical year, two sabbatical years in a row. Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. But here's what's different about jubilee. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee year for you. Do not sow, do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines for it is jubilee. It is to be holy for you. Eat only what is directly taken from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. Can you picture this? The 49th year being a seventh year, a sabbatical year, they're coming off All those things I just listed, they're going a whole nother year into the 50th year, but now everyone returns to what was originally belonging to their family. I think this is pretty hard for us to imagine, first of all, because today we're so removed from the land. I mean, I think some people in this room right now don't even know where chicken comes from. Kentucky Fried Chicken? (laughs) You know... I mean, um, in that part of the world, though, the, the three most important things to every person who lives there, and that's true to this day, God, family, land. Land is everything to them. That's why there's so much conflict over there. It's all about the land. That's why when you read the book of Joshua, the whole book is about the land. first part of Joshua is God giving them the land the second half of joshua is god distributing the land tribe of benjamin you get this land judah you get this land ephraim you get this land manasseh you get this land didn't stop there then it went to each clan all right each clan was parceled out their land and then it got down to each family each family got their parceled out piece of land and what each family got was probably a piece of land about a bit as big as this gym. About one acre. That land was theirs. That was theirs to, to create, to produce, to steward. But what happens over time? Could be a drought. There could be locusts. The family could have these unwise farming practices. There could just be plain laziness going on, but your land might not produce enough, and so to survive, you go into debt. If it gets worse, your family has to sell their land. If it still gets worse, the family might have to sell itself into slavery. It wouldn't be too long before you had two classes of people, the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. And I'm going to tell you something. This is what's been going on throughout history. In fact, I can can use my hand right now to tell you what our world looks like. One-fifth of the world right now lives in abject poverty on average, making less than a dollar a day, not knowing if they're going to get enough food to survive to the next day. That is one-fifth of our world. Take another finger. One-fifth of our world owns four-fifths of the world's resources. I don't know how that hits you, but Christians ought never look at our world or look at poverty and then say, God, where are you? The question is, where are you? Where's the church? Because God has given the world more than enough resources so that there shouldn't be anyone in need. Now, just think about what God prescribed to them. Every seven years, all debts canceled, forgiven. Every 50 years, it would be like hitting the reset button. Everyone got a do-over. Everyone got a second chance. Now, you tell me who this is good news to. To people who've amassed Farms? Large estates. It's good news to the poor. It's good news to the slave. It's good news to those who are in debt. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to proclaim gospel to the poor. See, this is God's heart. This is God's way. This is God's gospel. His gospel always afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. Isaiah in chapter 61, when he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about this Rescuer, this Messiah who is to come. And what Isaiah is telling everyone, that when Messiah comes, when the Rescuer comes, what he's going to do is he's going to proclaim sabbatical year. He's going to proclaim jubilee. Now we can take this thing to Jesus. Because Jesus, when you read Luke's Gospel... The first thing Jesus does after he comes out of the wilderness and the way that he kind of goes public with his ministry is he goes to a synagogue in his own hometown and he finds his place in the book. And he turns to Isaiah 61 and he reads, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then he closes the book or the scroll and he says, today, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. This is what Messiah came to do. This is what Messiah came to bring. He came to bring Jubilee, the gospel that Messiah, Jesus proclaimed is Jubilee. And see, the first thing that we as Christians do when we hear this is we spiritualize it. We're like, yeah. Jesus came proclaiming jubilee. He came for the spiritually broken. He came for the spiritually poor, the poor in spirit. Jesus came to save souls. And while this is all true, Jesus came to do a lot more than this. Because when you read Luke 4 really closely, I'd love for you to do this today lay out what Jesus read in Luke 4 next to Isaiah 61. And when you read that carefully, look at what he leaves out, which we're going to uh, deal with next time, but also look at what he adds. Because either the the, the scroll that he's reading from, the scribe got it wrong and, and, and wrote the wrong thing, or Jesus read the wrong thing, Or, Jesus, being so brilliant like he is, takes a clause from another text and says, You want to know I'm here? I need to also borrow from this over here in Isaiah 58. And he set the oppressed free. And see, his hearers knew exactly what they did because they knew their book. Many of them had it memorized, so they would have heard what Jesus did and been like, Are you kidding me? Did you just hear what Jesus said? Not only is he Messiah, but Messiah is here, not only to do Isaiah 61, but also Isaiah 58. And you're like, what's in Isaiah 58? I'm not telling you. I want you to read it today and feel the joy in your soul to see what Jesus' mission was all about. And I'll tell you right now, he came to do more than save souls and bring a few lost souls to heaven with them when he dies, when they die. Jesus also came to redeem the poor. Jesus came to, re- to feed the hungry, to give shelter to the homeless. He came to rebuild places devastated, to restore ruined cities, and to redeem a ruined creation. And I'm going to tell you something. What hurts me today is how many Christians have it in their mind that what Christ did And came to do the A to Z of that. He came to save my soul. And I get to be part of the one-fifth that owns four-fifths of the world's resources. And and just keep that world out. And then someday it's going to take me to heaven. And calling that the gospel. God's plan is not to save a few souls from the carnage of this world. His plan is to save and redeem the whole world. For God so loves the world. He loves it. And when God saves you and he saves me, he remakes us into his own image so that he can say to us, all right, partner with me. Let's go remake the world. Let's go remake the city that's devastated. Let's go repair neighborhoods that are broken. And see, in spiritualizing Jubilee, in spiritualizing the gospel, we have blinded ourselves to God's heart, and we excuse ourselves from caring for what God cares for. And you know why God loves the sabbatical year and jubilee so much? He loves the poor. This is God's way of protecting the poor. This is God's way of providing for the poor. And when you go to Deuteronomy 15 and you read about God's instructions for sabbatical year, right in the heart of that, God says, There shall be no poor among you. That's a command. Because this is God's heart. God loves the poor. God loves the powerless. God loves the weak. He loves the needy. He loves the orphan. He loves the widow. And he wants us to love the poor. There's so many places in scripture where I could flush this out. I'll start with this. The word for righteousness in Hebrew. Tzedakah. It's the word for justice. And so if you ask yourself today, are you righteous? Righteousness is not just about this spiritual thing you have going on with God. And I don't look at pornography. And I'm faithful to my wife. And I haven't killed anyone. While it involves that, righteousness to God is not just this spiritual thing we have with him but it has a lot to do with our relationship to the world. Proverbs 29, verse 7. God says, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Are you righteous? are you wicked? Do you care about the poor? Or do you have no concern for them? God also loves Sabbath, Sabbath year, and Jubilee, because he loves the rich. And with these God-appointed times, God is protecting the rich. Because what happens when we become rich? Our hearts start to do this crazy thing. And we start to think, that's mine. That's all mine. But see, then when you go to Leviticus 25, where God is giving them instructions on the sabbatical year and Jubilee, and you get to verse 23, now God's giving the why as to the commands He's giving. He says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. And you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. So what God is teaching them through Sabbath, Sabbath year, and Jubilee, God's saying, I'm the owner. You don't own your money. You don't own your house. You don't own your car. You don't even own your own body. I'm the owner. You're just a tenant. In fact, that's the meaning of the word Hebrew. Hebrew means to be a resident alien, a stranger, an outsider. So the title of Hebrews in English could be resident aliens and how that fits because by the time you get to chapter 11 when god lays out the the hall of fame of faith he says about abraham and he says about all the great men and women of faith they lived in this world as exiles as resident aliens because they were hoping in a country that was yet to come Do you live as an owner or a tenant? And see, the brilliance of Jubilee, of course it's brilliant because it's from God, is it's protecting rich people or anyone from making riches the great prize. Because every 50 years, I've got to give it all back. Everything extra that I accumulate, I gotta give it back. So, you know what? That's gonna keep me from putting all my eggs in the ba- basket of, of trying to get more and more and more because every 50 years I'm gonna have to give it all back. But listen, are we any different? Every 70 years, maybe 80, or maybe 50 or less. We got to give it all back, and we have to give an accounting to how we stewarded all that God gave us. And see, I think the reason why God loves Sabbath and sabbatical year and jubilee is because it really forces us to ask a basic question. What are we going to eat? What are we going to eat if I take Sabbath off? What are we going to eat a whole year? And you know what? Read Leviticus 25. This is the question they ask. Leviticus 25 verse 20. What shall we eat? And God says, trust me. Because what God does, just like he did when they were in the wilderness, and when it came up to Sabbath, God says, don't you dare pick up any manna from the go- ground on Sabbath, because that is work. Trust me. The day before, I'm going to provide a double portion of manna. God says the same thing here. When you approach sabbatical year, trust me, I'm going to provide double, and when you approach uh, the, the 49th and the 50th year of Jubilee, trust me, I'm going to provide triple. But look at us. The one-fifth who have four-fifths of the world's resources. Enough is never enough. we got to save more. we got to store more up. we got to hoard more. And do you realize what we're saying to God? I don't trust you. You know what Jesus does? He takes this very question, what shall we eat, and places it where? In the Sermon on the Mount. And see, you just think that Jesus is is, is pulling this thing out of nowhere. Uh Uh-uh, Jesus knows the book. He knows Torah. He's pulling his question right out of Torah. And he says, you know what? That's how pagans talk. That's how pagans think what shall we eat he says but those who belong to my kingdom and seek first my kingdom they know there's a heavenly father who's going to provide for them and take care of all their needs how do we apply this sabbatical year jubilee I want to start with this We need to develop a Psalm 119 love for Torah. I beg you to read Psalm 119 today because that whole psalm is about Torah. And the psalmist is not saying, Ugh, this is so burdensome. This is so difficult. Everything that comes out of his mouth, every clause is, I delight in Torah. Torah is life to me. It satisfies me. It is good. It is honey. It is sweet to my mouth. Because this is God's heart. Second of all, again, there's no way we could fulfill the letter of this law of Jubilee because we don't live in a theocracy, and we're not all farmers, where we all have our piece of land. So this, the, the letter of the law is an impossibility. However, the spirit of the law is the thing that we must capture. And if you want to find the spirit of, of the law, the spirit of Torah, all you need to do is look to Jesus. Because Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy Torah and to do away with Torah. I came to show you how to do it perfectly. And think about Jubilee. He is Jubilee. He brought Jubilee. He proclaimed Jubilee. He lived Jubilee. And how did he do it? Look at his generosity. Generosity. He left everything. He gave it all up. He became poor to make others rich. He became homeless to bring us back to home. He became a slave to set us free. Does this kind of generosity mark your life? What today are you doing for the poor, the widow, and the orphan, and the needy? And see, this is where my heart just before a holy God and before his holy heart. I just feel like a failure. I'm hardly even in the game. And this is where I need to see the spiritual side of Jubilee, because there is a spiritual side. In fact, when you listen to Jesus and you look at the things he did and, 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 and the things that he said, I mean, throughout his ministry, he uses images from the year of Jubilee. Things like the poor person being set free from debt, he oftentimes uses debt as this metaphor for sin. In fact, I think my favorite one is is in Luke 7 when you have Simon, this Pharisee, who invites Jesus into his home. And while they're sitting there and eating, this woman comes in and she falls at Jesus' feet. She Christ's the Christ. She anoints the anointed one, with her tears. And Simon the Pharisee, who's looking at this, knows what this woman is, knows that she's a prostitute, and has done all kinds of things, and is disgusted with it, and finally just blurts out to Jesus, Jesus, do you know what kind of woman this is? And I love how Jesus responds because he tells a parable. He says, two men owed the king money. One owed hundred dollars, and the other owed a million dollars. The king forgave both of them. Who's going to love that king more? And of course, Simon says the one who owed a million dollars, and Jesus says the one who has been forgiven much is the one who loves much. Who are you in the story? Who are you in this parable? How desperate are you for mercy? Do you know right now? You're in debt billions of dollars to the king of the universe in and of yourself. But see, you know what Simon's problem is? He's middle class. And he has this middle class thing going on with Jesus. I'm okay. My life is okay. Not too much of Jesus. Just a little bit of Jesus. Just enough that I find interesting of Jesus. Not bowed at the feet of Jesus. But Jesus on my terms. And see, so many of you are middle class in your Christianity, because you come in here all sophisticated, thinking your life is okay and that you're okay. Just give me a little bit of Jesus. Give me a little Jesus fix today. And you wonder why you look around at some people and you're just not moved. And there's no tears. And there's no extravagance in your response. You don't know the debt you owe him. Jesus did not come for the middle class. Jesus came for the poor. And only the poor. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim gospel. you love much? Do you know your dad? Stop being middle class and become poor. And I'll be honest with you. That's why this guy right here is such a gift to me. Because he teaches me how to respond to Jesus. And there is nothing sophisticated about Richard. I see tears. I see him bowed all the time. He didn't come for the sophisticated. He didn't come for middle class. He came for the poor. And if you're poor today, you're so crushed by the debt of your sin... Know this, his gospel is jubilee. It forgives everything, all of it. Let's pray. God, wake us up. Wake my heart up. So many of us, Lord, are more concerned about the fun we're going to have today, the food we're going to eat, the toys we're going to play with. Forgive us, Lord, for not being concerned enough with the things you're concerned with. I pray you would push jubilee in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. I have one more piece. Is that okay? Um, if God's gonna push Jubilee into our hearts, it's gonna affect a lot of things. It's gonna affect how we handle our money, our resources, how we treat the poor and the needy. But spiritually, if He pushes Jubilee into our hearts, Jesus even says this in, in, in the way that He taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our, those who are in debt to us. What he's talking about there is forgiveness. And he's not just talking about the forgiveness that we get from God. But he's saying, because of the forgiveness you get from me, I want that to translate then in you forgiving those around you. And see, here's the problem today. The church doesn't know how to forgive. And there's so much bitterness, there's so much anger, hatred within the church. And I'll be the first to say that forgiveness is probably the hardest thing that a person will ever do. But it is the most powerful thing. And let me tell you why, because this is what forgiveness is. The reason why we forgive is because someone has hurt us and they've wronged us. And when someone hurts us and when someone wrongs us, we now just instinctively think, because of that, you owe me. You owe me for the wrong you caused to me. But what forgiveness is doing is it's canceling out all that debt and it's freeing that person and saying, "Uh uh-uh, you hurt me, you wronged me, you don't owe me anything we do that in our heart. The Bible says forgive with your whole heart. And the way that we forgive with our whole heart is we don't just bring words to that, but we get really specific and we name the person who has hurt us. We name the specific hurt that they've caused us. And we name the emotion that it's produced in us, whether it's bitterness or anger. We name all of it, the person, the hurt, and the emotion. And then what we do is we don't just take the principles or the steps of what we're supposed to do, but we look at the cross, and we get the power that's in the cross. And we see the God of the universe who's forgiving us the billions of dollars of debt that we owe him. And now it's like we got the power. Now I can release those. this could be the most significant way in which Jubilee comes to this church is if you just heard and respond what God is speaking to your hearts.